of Cain murdering his brother Abel. Once sin came into the world, this is the devastating effects that it brought with it, because sin always brings collateral damage. You skip on over to Genesis chapter 6, and now all of a sudden you see that everything that was very good is all of a sudden very bad. Again, what was in the garden, such order and peace and beauty and perfection, is now lost. And you look at Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, it reads, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Skip down to verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh and corrupt, had corrupted their way upon the earth. And you ask yourself, how did it get so bad in a relatively short period of time? How do things go from paradise to plague in such a short time? Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? As soon as Eve partakes of that forbidden fruit and gives it to her husband, who also partakes, we see that their eyes were opened, that they saw their nakedness and they felt ashamed, that they ran and hid themselves. And then they hear God walking in the garden. And God calls out, Adam, where are you? And Adam responds that he had been hiding because he was naked and ashamed. And God replies like this, who told you? That you were naked. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And if you look here in verse 11, we have a very simple picture of sin that is painted for us, right? Notice it again. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did you do explicitly what I told you not to do? Have you eaten from that tree that I told you not to eat from? Because that's what sin is. Sin is is doing blatantly what God told you not to do. Or, sin is not doing what God blatantly told you to do. Whether by commission or omission, we sin when we fail to follow the instructions from God. God told Adam and Eve what tree that they were not to eat from. He was not vague, he was not ambiguous, he was crystal clear. But have you noticed how we often sanitize rationalize and justify sin we're not much different than the devil right the devil in his cunning and sly way convinced eve to partake of that fruit he said indeed has god said you shall not eat from the tree or from any tree in the garden in other words satan is saying did god really say that i mean do you really think that's what god means but we do the same thing don't we i mean think about it we say things like, is God really going to send me to hell for doing X? I mean, are you telling me that God really is against homosexuality? I mean, really? I mean, if, if a person loves another person, isn't that all that really matters? Are you telling me that God doesn't want me to be happy? I mean, isn't that really what it's all about? And we do the same thing. We, we gloss over it. We sanitize it. We justify it. When God has spoken very clearly, not in vagaries, not in ambiguous terms, we try to spin it in a way that favors us. 
But if Genesis chapter 3 teaches us anything, it teaches us this very lesson, and that is God means what he says. If God said it, then, then we are to do it. If he said not to do it, then we are to avoid it. Notice again God's words to Adam. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Sin is doing what God has told you not to do. And I realize for some people that's just too simple. That's too simple of a definition. But this isn't higher math. It was never intended to be complicated. It's very easy. Sin is doing what God has told you not to do, or sin is refusing to do what God has told you to do. It's that simple, period, exclamation point, right? And we're not talking about a sickness here. We're not talking about a misstep. We're not talking about a hang-up or an issue. Let's call sin what it actually is and what the Bible calls it. It is a transgression against God. It is trespassing against God. It is saying, I am blatantly going to ignore what you've told me to do or not to do. That's what it is. Sin is disobedience to God. You know, back in the 70s, Carl Menninger came out with a book that became very popular entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? And many people today are still asking that question. Whatever happened to sin? Sin has become taboo in our culture. There are many things that we would call sin based on what the Bible tells us that we try to maybe avoid calling such in our daily lives. My guess would be that we could go to many churches in our culture here in America and it would be several weeks, months, maybe even years before we ever heard the word sin talked about. We're still asking the question, whatever happened to sin? Why don't we talk about it much anymore? Is it because it's too offensive? Is it because we, we want the crowds, and if we mention something that's too offensive, we'll run the crowds off? You see, here's the deal. We cannot allow society to shape our view of right and wrong. Our world has no clue what truth is. Never has. And our world is changing the standard all the time. You want to base your livelihood on the shifting sand of society? Our world can't figure out what is right and wrong. Our world will always do, as it reads in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is our world. That is the mantra of our world. If it's truth to you, if it's something that you believe in wholeheartedly, even if it's wrong, go ahead and engage in it. Who's to tell you any different? And we blatantly ignore what God has said. And we know that society, many times, is going headlong over the cliff. Are we going to follow them? Hopefully not. Let's look at it like this. Do you, remember, do you remember Lot's daughters? You remember how Lot's daughters fled the sinful city of Sodom? And by fleeing that sinful city, they put themselves in a, in a rather precarious position, didn't they? Because they felt by fleeing that city and going and living in the mountains that they would put themselves in a position to never find a husband and consequently never marry. And so we find these virgin daughters of Lot doing the unspeakable. They have incest with their father. Now, keep in mind that Lot had offered his virgin daughters to the men that had visited him. Remember that in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 8, these men that, uh, that visited Sodom? Now, these women had been able to stay pure in a very impure society. 
For all these years, they had chosen purity. What in the world would cause them in that moment to do the unthinkable? They had protected their purity for so long. Why would they do something so egregious? Because they paid attention to their surroundings. They focused too much on their circumstances. And when we do that, we often give in to instant gratification. We often give in to sin. And we do things that are unspeakable. Don't think that it can't happen to us. Because it's far too easy to allow culture and circumstances to affect our decisions. And we have to be keenly aware of this temptation, and we, we have to hear a louder voice whispering in our ear. Because that's where we go off track. When we listen to a voice that is louder than God's, that's when we falter. If only Adam and Eve would have listened more closely. When, when, the, when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that? If only she would have heard a louder voice in her ear saying, don't eat it. But she didn't. She focused on her circumstances. She looked around. She allowed Satan to whisper in her ear and she allowed that voice to be the loudest. Sin is the result of listening to a voice that is louder than God's. It all reminds me of the gentleman that was standing on a street corner in Chicago, and many people thought him to be insane, and, and mobs of people would walk by, and every so often he would stand up and point at one of them and go, Sinner! And people would look at him like he was nuts. Maybe he was. And every so often he'd do it again. Somebody would walk by and he'd point at one of the people and say, Sinner! After a while, two men are walking by, and they're not really paying attention, and they hear the man point at one of them and say, Sinner! And one of the guys looks at the other and says, how does he know? Because it's not that hard to discern, right? It's not that hard to figure out who's a sinner. Again, this isn't advanced math. It's pretty simple. We all fall short. We are all sinners, right? Paul says that very plainly in Romans chapter 3. You don't have to be a psychic to figure this out. But the issue is not whether we are a sinner or not. The issue is how are we going to respond to our sin? We can sanitize it, we can rationalize it, we can justify it, but at the end of the day, the one that we have sinned against knows our heart. He knows our failures. Go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So Satan puts doubt in Eve's mind, and his word is now becoming louder than the word of God. And think about this. In essence, he is saying, God is lying to you. God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because he's got some character flaws. And one of them is he's insanely jealous, and he thinks that if you eat from this fruit, the fruit from this tree, then you're going to be smarter than him or as wise as him, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want what's best for you. That's the message that Satan is giving to Eve. But I want you to notice something here also. I want you to notice that Eve found the tree appealing. That she took her focus off of God. She focused on her circumstances. No doubt the serpent had brought it to her attention. But I want you to see three things that entice Eve. Number one, good for food. 
Number two, a delight to the eyes. And number three, desirable to make one wise. Do you get that? Good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Those are the three things that she noticed about the forbidden tree. Now, keep those three things in mind, and let's go to 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, here's what we read. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's as if John is saying that there are three categories of sin, three broad categories that you can take every sin and put them into. All sin falls under one of these headings, right? And they are lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now go back to those three things we just said about Eve when she looked at the forbidden tree. Remember how she noticed that the fruit was good for food? That's the lust of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. The boastful pride of life. Sin has been the same from the garden till now. It's always the same. It falls into one of those three categories. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Sometimes it's all of them, right? It all boils down to this. How do we approach life? Are we approaching life from the fleshly or from the spiritual? And when you approach life from the fleshly, like Eve did, like John is warning against here, then we will always fail. But if you approach it from the spiritual or the godly, that makes all the difference. Are we approaching things from a perspective that is godly or fleshly? Whose voice is the loudest? What voice is dominating our minds? You look at Hebrews chapter 11. Starting at verse 24, it reads, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You learn something very valuable here about how to approach sin and how to cut it off early. Not to say that Moses was perfect. We know his story. But think about this. Moses had grown up in the lap of luxury. To say that he was privileged would be a huge understatement. He grew up in a palace, right? And then one day he learns that he's not an Egyptian. He's an Israelite. And he sees how his people are being treated by the Egyptians. And now he's got a decision to make. Now, he's got a battle. Am I going to live in prosperity and ignore what's happening to my people? Or am I going to leave this lap of luxury and stick up for my people? And we know the decision that he made, right? He passed on the passing pleasures of sin so that he could be with God's people and lead God's people. He was able, though, and that's, that's really the key, he was able to look past the present and see the reward. I've heard well-meaning Christians say, well, I just don't understand why they do that. You don't? I do. I mean, we should all understand sin. We may not understand the type of sin a person is engaging in, but we all understand why we do it. We do it because it's pleasurable in the moment, don't we? 
I mean, we give in to sin, we succumb to sin because it gratifies us in the moment. That's why people sin. They give in to instant gratification. The really, the system behind sin and, and why we give in to it, why we do the things that we do, is not really hard to understand. It's not complicated. God's stance on sin is not complicated. And the remedy for sin, really, is not complicated. You know, when we lived in Missouri, one of my favorite things for the kids and I to do was to go to Springfield, which was about an hour away, and go to the Bass Pro Shop. And at this particular Bass Pro Shop, they have this alligator snapping turtle in this huge aquarium. And it's said that he's like 100 years old. He weighs 75 pounds. And my kids just love standing there at that aquarium glass and looking at it swim around. And the interesting thing about alligator snapping turtles is they live and they settle on the bottom of a lake or a riverbed and they open their mouth and they wiggle their tongue. And on the end of their tongue is this worm-like appendage and they just wiggle it back and forth. And then when a fish or something swims by and sees that that looks like a worm, they go up and try to bite it and eat it. And guess what happens? Yeah, the turtle clamps his, his jaws down, and, and he's got lunch. And we're no different. I mean, we're the same way. Satan is dangling that worm there in front of us. He is a master fisherman, and he has caught a lot of fish. And you'd think we're smarter than fish, right? Not always. We give in in our weak moments. We look at what's enticing. We think it's food. But sin always looks enticing in the beginning. It always promises pleasure, but it always pays with pain, right? Any of us who have lived through sin know that. You think about the biggest mistakes that you have ever made in your life. Think about the worst mistakes you've ever made. I guarantee you most times they were because you didn't think things through. They were because you just gave in to the moment and you did something impulsive that was stupid and you paid for it, right? But in turn, think about the greatest decisions you've ever made in your life. Think about the best decisions you've ever made. The chances are you made those decisions with careful thought. You thought it through. Maybe you made a list of pros and cons, whatever it may be, but you thought those decisions through, and that's why they turned out well for you. We've got to ask ourselves when we are faced with temptation, what will be the result if I eat this forbidden fruit? What's going to be the result? Instead of just giving in to the moment and succumbing to our circumstances, sin has to be cut off at the temptation point. And when we are faced with temptation, we have to ask ourselves, what's going to be the result? What voice is loudest in our ear? There is a website named Ashley Madison. Maybe you've heard of that website. It made the news two or three years ago because somebody hacked its database and revealed a lot of the names of the members of this website. Ashley Madison is a website that you can join for free to have an affair. And it has many clients. Their slogan is, life is short, have an affair. And many people have taken them up on this, this slogan. But you know, I've never been to the website But I guarantee you, 
There are no testimonials on that website of crying children saying, I just want my family to get back together. I bet you anything, there are no children on there saying, I just wish my mom and dad would stop fighting. I wish he had never have done that, and they would just come back together. I guarantee you there's no, there's no man or woman on there saying, don't do this, you'll regret it later. I'm a prime example. Because if there were no people who gave in to instant gratification, we wouldn't have websites like this, right? It's all about satisfying a person in the moment. It's all about wiggling that worm out in front as bait, trying to get someone to take. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. After their sin, the Bible says that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, they went and hid themselves. The, answer, the question is why? Why did they make fig coverings for themselves? Why did they sew leaves together and make coverings for themselves? They were the only two people on earth and they had already seen each other naked. Why are they now trying to cover each other up? Because now, all of a sudden, after eating that forbidden fruit, their perspective on things had changed. Sin does that. It changes our perspective. It changes our outlook. That's why. Notice, it says they felt shame for their nakedness. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He was afraid because he was naked. In their shame, Adam and Eve hid themselves. Their hiding probably had something to do with what was said in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17 when it read, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And they did die, didn't they? They died spiritually. And throughout Scripture we see that death is signified by separation. And that's what happened. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were separated from God. They were kicked out of the garden. Their whole relationship with God had changed. They once enjoyed close communion or fellowship with God in the garden of perfection. And now that whole climate had changed, all because they made a very bad decision. All because Satan's voice was loudest in their ears. But here's the thing. Do you realize that sin can produce something good? I mean, it really can. Sin can produce guilt or shame. And guilt or shame can actually be a good thing. We invest in the here and now. We make a, a terrible decision by giving in to instant gratification. And what do we feel most times? We feel guilt and we feel shame. And when we feel guilt and shame, we have a decision to make there. We can fix it by doing the right thing, by coming back to God, by asking for forgiveness. Or we can do like Adam and Eve did, which is go and hide somewhere. And we tend to do that, don't we? All too often, we tend to hide in isolation. We tend to hold up somewhere. And we sit there and try to soothe our wounds. We stay locked in this prison of guilt and shame. We say things like, God could never forgive me for what I've done. Nobody understands. And what happens all too often is the very people who need God and need his people shy away from him. All of a sudden, you don't see him in worship anymore. 
they're not close to God anymore. They don't go back to God and ask for forgiveness. They stay away from Him, I guess, out of sight, out of mind. But the very times when we need God and His people the most is when we pull away. Why? Because we're reacting to guilt and shame in a negative way. We've allowed Satan to win once. Don't allow him to continue to win by staying isolated or holed up and distant from God. We've got to understand that guilt and shame can be a good thing. Paul talked about that, right? He said, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow can be a good thing. Guilt can be a good thing if it spurs us on to fix things. Again, Satan won one time. Don't let him continue to win by staying locked in this prison of guilt and shame. Allow it to encourage you to be the catalyst to go to God and seek forgiveness and restoration. Don't allow him to keep winning. Don't stay separated from God. That's the worst place to be, right? You may know the name Bob Shannon. Bob Shannon was the legendary coach for East St. Louis High School in East St. Louis, Illinois. During his time there, 20 years, he won six state championships and two national championships. I hope that means Jesus is coming back. Somebody's phone's going off. This is Bob Shannon, although the picture isn't great, because remember we talked about last week how the signal's being split, and it's kind of kind of blurry, but this is Bob Shannon. Six state championships in 20 years at East St. Louis High School, two national championships. Have you ever been to East St. Louis? I have. And let me tell you, it is the epitome of urban decay. Windows boarded up. Things have deteriorated to the point there's, it's a sinkhole of crime. In fact, Bob Shannon says that one day they were going to the practice field and found the body of an executed drug dealer laying on the practice field. That many times his players would have to go through a gauntlet of gang activity just to get to class. And it makes you ask the question, how could somebody be so successful and turn out winners in such an imperfect climate? right? And here's what he said. He said, we battle tough odds, but we don't look for excuses to explain failure. We look for ways to succeed. And you think about that, and you think, no wonder this man was a winner. Constantly encouraging kids who come from the depths of poverty and despair to be winners, to not excuse themselves and act like, well, this is just the way it is. I can't do any better. No, you can do better. And that's what he reinforced over and over again. And he turned out winners over and over again. People that not only played football and won state championships or national championships, but young men who went on to be stars in other areas of life. Coming from an imperfect climate, they became winners. Adam and Eve lived in a perfect climate. They had perfection. It was utopia, yet they failed. And what did they do about their failure? They made excuses. Eve blamed the devil. And who did Adam blame? God for creating Eve. You gave this woman to me. But that didn't work, right? Let us never, ever make excuses for our failure. Let us rise above by allowing the guilt and the shame to bring us to God, not, 
not away from Him, to ask forgiveness and let us be winners, right? Let's turn out winners, not excuses. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity to be here, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and we thank you so much for loving us, for giving us this community that we can come together, that we can rally around one another and support one another, and we just thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace, and we thank you so much for the hope that comes through your Son. May we never allow sin to separate us from you or from your people. May we always come back. May we always give you our all and may we be winners in the end. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I would say, I would ask the question, how many of you in here have sinned? But I know the answer to that question. How are you going to respond to sin? That's the question. And if you need to respond this morning, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone and, and learn what it takes to be a disciple, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, if you have done that already and you have fallen away and you need the prayers and support of this church family, whatever your need is, leave here a winner today and come now as we stand and as we sing. Restore my spirit, Lord, I need restored. My heart is empty, please help me, dear Lord. I stand in need of more strength from your word renew my love, rebuild my faith, oh, restore my soul. Revive the fire, Lord.